This is uh, the kilt and the cloth with our my Monday, my Tuesday morning Bible study as we continue the Gospel of Matthew. We're picking up at Matthew chapter 17, verse uh, 14, and uh, we start off with Jesus curing a boy with a demon, <clears throat> which is interesting because where we left off the Bible study last week is, is this conversation about the transfiguration where... Uh, Matthew is still trying to figure out, the author of Matthew is still trying to figure out how do we talk about Jesus as uh, something beyond human and something that is divine. And the, and the very first way that they do that uh, in the Gospel of Matthew is this, this moment that's completely different than any other story that we have. <clears throat> Transfiguration story is different in uh, the gospel, the other gospels, uh, but this is Matthew's understanding. So uh, I wanted to give you an example of how they're different, but not necessarily in a bad way. Let me pull it up. So, Transfiguration story, we know most likely had to have come from Mark. Because it's one of those stories that's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so if it comes from, if it's in all three of them, the normal, the original story came from Mark. That's that's how we do the historical Jesus analysis. <clears throat> so this is this is the story from Mark, which makes it a little bit different. Uh, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Notice that in the other one, it's uh, his, his face shone like that, and his clothes became whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, is what the translation I have says. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, um, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, a.k.a. tents, uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Remember, Matthew has this idea of fear. Uh, not a fear as in I'm terrified I'm going to die, but a fear of, uh, I have the fear of the Lord in me is the idea. Uh, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they were no, they, no, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. The story is not that different, uh, except for, in the Gospel of Matthew, it continues on. You know, it goes on to about, uh, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? So Matthew goes into more detail as to after the transfiguration story. And what he does is, and this is, might blow your mind a little, is he explains Torah. This is why Elijah has to come forth first. This is why this took place. Matthew is wanting you to understand that Jesus is the epitome and the uh, the true Mashiach from the past. Okay, Luke's version, which I'm going to go to now, and this is NIV version at the moment. Uh, where is it? Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. How many days did Matthew Mark say? Six. After six days later, Jesus took took him with Peter, right? 
After eight days later, Luke says, Jesus then took Peter, John, and James with him up on a mountain to pray. And he was praying the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to uh, bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Uh, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. They all agree on that part. While he was speaking, <clears throat> a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time that they had seen. So Matthew and Mark don't tell anyone. Luke says they just chose not to. Right? Uh you can see the difference in generational aspects of that story. Um, there's a, a sense of urgency in Mark and Matthew, uh, Luke. It's it's just an event that takes place. It's just something that happens. Who uh, Mark? It was let me go back. nine two, and it goes yeah or nine. Yeah, That's, I have a question about that. It's yeah, all. All three Gospels, before that story, Jesus says, some of you will not taste death before they see the Son of God coming in his kingdom. It's almost like he's talking about the transfiguration. Oh, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. That's on purpose. That's 100%. <clears throat> now, without going down a huge rabbit trail, because I could very quickly on this, we tend to believe historically that that's a Q statement, that Q, uh, again, I don't want to freak you all out is the way that we look at historical documentation when it comes to the Bible is we want to go as close to the physical eyewitness as we can get, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not physical eyewitnesses, but they're as close to it as you can get. So what academics have created for the last 200 years is they basically say there's another source that we call Q. And it must have been like the first eyewitness report that they all heard or they all knew about. And that Q source statement was the statement right before this, where it says, uh, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's an older statement than all three Gospels combined. And they all agree on it. So, <clears throat> so in that case, Ted, you, you, you nail it right on the head. The, the transfiguration story changes, but the statement right before that solidifies that the early church tradition believed that this took place. That should matter. So now if, if there's a moment where Peter, James, and John see this experience, notice that Luke also has him sleeping again. Right? That's his modus operandi. The, the disciples are always unaware. They're always asleep. They're always uh, lackadaisical, not lazy, lackadaisical. These things happen, but it just it just happens. Matthew has a tendency to have, we have to prove that Torah is real. So it's a, it's a, it's a test. All of Jesus's language is a test. And in Mark, they're always afraid of what was going to happen next. 
because this guy is not just challenging uh, the Sanhedrin, he's, he's challenging Rome. So it's, it's a big, big difference. And I didn't want to leave that story from last week without having this discussion. One more rabbit hole, I'm sorry. That's fine. It's just, yeah, talk about biblical consistency and accuracy. Mm -hmm. We've got one saying eight days and two saying six days. Is that a big deal? No. It's not, is it? <coughs> no. It, it, you could just safely it say it was six right. to eight days. It's, 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 it's almost a week. Yeah. It's about a week. Yeah, it's, it's uh, most, most. What I love about the Bible, too, is you, for people, it just shows how authentic the scriptures are because some scribe or somebody couldn't look at it. Oh, well, someone said two there, and he said two there, but this guy said eight. We'll just get the old magic eraser out. We'll just change that yeah. to six. That's so they good. all match. Yeah, that's but literally what happened. They were more concerned with it being accurate than it, than it matching exactly. Right. The so, story The story is about the transfiguration. Right. For them, that's the, the focus. And so it, throughout the whole Hebrew Bible, so anytime you see 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years, it just means a really long time. Longer than a month, longer than a moon cycle, uh, and then are longer than a couple of years, you know. Could, could them being asleep, could it be where they're not, black predators not thinking right, and that they're not thinking through this process? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, I think Luke does that on purpose. Yes, I think I think Luke does that in the sense of you. It's like you all watching a movie, right? There's sometimes you're watching a movie and you're really into it, but you really don't catch everything that takes place in the movie, right? And afterwards, it's like, oh yeah, I remember this one time this thing happened. That's kind of the way that the writer of Luke writes the disciples. Matthew wants you to know that the disciples uh, just can't connect, you know, because it's just, it's just not making sense. You're telling them, Jesus is telling them, hey, as a Jew, uh, everything you know is gone. And it's still there. But it's not the way you've always known. But it's, it's, still, it's still important. Hence the story about Torah, which is why Matthew ends this <clears throat> which is my favorite part. He goes, uh, at, right before we get started to read today, at verse uh, 10, and the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, well, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And, um, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. And then, the disciples understood that he meant that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. See how Matthew puts a nice little bow in it? The other ones don't. Yeah. <clears throat> Moses is in this picture. Yeah. And we're going to have Moses, right? We don't. He was laid at the foot of the God. But now we know that he's with God. Now we know he's with God. Somewhere, somewhere, somebody's filled in the connecting dots. Yes, is where I say it. Um, also, later, God. Uh, just Peter, James, and John. But, yeah, in a cloud. Yeah, they don't get to see, but they hear. That's uh, right. Which is not the Old Testament. Yeah, the only time that the people ever heard 
God's voice as a collective was after the Exodus story and Moses had come down from the mountain. And there's a big cloud, remember? And God spoke to the group with the cloud. And after that, we have very little conversations with God as a, a collective entity. Ezekiel uh, stretches that a little bit. God's voice is heard, but not to the people. You know, Samuel, another one hears God's voice, and they end up becoming prophets. So if that if we go with that idea, if Matthew is focusing in on Torah, what is it that Matthew is setting up for Peter, James, and John? The only people that hear God's voice are prophets. Prophets, but they're prophets. I mean, yeah. They're the leaders of the church, I guess. Matthew is setting them up as leaders of the church, and, prophets. And Matthew is to a Jewish, yeah, to a Jewish audience. So he's he's bridging. He may already throw him, but God's there that he knows. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this, this is not the Gentiles he's talking to. Not, mean, not necessarily. No. The disciples need something. <clears throat> physical malady that they're having to go through. Matthew obviously is not concerned about that as much. However, he is concerned with health and healing because he has a whole bunch of healing stories like this one that we're getting ready to read. Let's, let's read them. <clears throat> when they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, uh, moonstruck, uh, and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Listen to that language. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse uh, generation. How much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. Is that word uh, demon? It, it, out, okay. And it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Notice how this story is played. This is brilliant, brilliant writing. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, uh, before we, we get into the, the, the theology aspect of this, I want to talk a little bit about the history aspect of this. <clears throat> uh, the disciples' little faith aspect is something that happens a lot with all of the stories. In Mark, the, the writer has this idea where he kind of plays on it like sometimes 
in Jesus's humanity, he doesn't have all of the energy that he needs to heal someone. Like the guy that was blind, he spits on his face and the guy's, he says, so can you see now? And he says, well, I see shadows. And then Jesus has to spit on his face twice. Remember, that's, that's a weird story, uh, but it's on purpose. There's Mark is doing this to show you this moment. This mustard seed thing is, it's supposed, it's not a joke. Um, I always say this, it's a, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can change this. If only that mustard seed can also bring down the mountain of Rome. Think of what it would do if just a group of people decided to roll bolt against Rome. Eventually that becomes bigger. It reminds me of that old church camp song. It only takes a spark to, to get a fire going. It's, it's that kind of impetus that is being thrown out here. However, there is the aspect of the faith experience in the same boat, right? If you have faith that God can do these things, then God will, like casting out demons. What are the demons? Rome. And it happens. We know it's going to happen. This also gives you proof that uh, this is written after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, but that's another conversation for another day. So let's keep going. So he does this, and then he goes right into, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man uh, is going to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised. And they were greatly distressed. When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay temple tax? It should be, does your teacher, what's that word there? Does not pay. No, right before the teacher word. Oh, did a scholar. Did a scholar. So yeah, it's teacher. That, I was, uh, that's not the word they would use for rabbi. Oh, okay. That's why it was, it's just, yeah, it's an actual teacher. Uh, he said, "Is yes, he does." <laughs> and when he comes, and when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, "What do you think, Simon? From whom do you, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute, from their children or from others?" When Peter said, uh, "From others," Jesus said, "Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up." And when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Okay, anybody else have a question about this? Just so happens to have a didrachma in it. <laughs> Clearly a miraculous story. Yeah, right. I mean, it uh, didn't seem like Jesus heard that conversation, but he knew that conversation had happened. Of course, mm -hmm. showing some um, 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 some kind of thing where you know everything. Um, you right on the tip. I will tell you that Dr. Carter has a lot to say about this. <laughs> a tax, I'm sure. Temple tax, right? Temple tax. So there's two problems with this. 
there's the temple tax. If he's as if he's the son of God, why are they worried about that? And the coin that they're using is is Roman. It's a you know it's a didrachmus, but it's, so there's there's a bit of a problem. I just have to read this to you because it's kind of funny. I think it's funny. Uh, he says that most commentators argue that the scene pr pr provides the the Theon with a theological object lesson that has nothing to do with paying taxes. Rather, they suggest that it instructs the community variously about God as a loving father, about sonship, about Peter, about the rejection of Israel, about freedom from the temple cult, about giving as a voluntary action rather than a theocratic taxation, and especially about ex exercising Christian freedom responsibly, either in relation to the state or more commonly so as not to offend or cause a community member to stumble. Now, guess what he says? However, this scene uses the setting of Jesus's day to instruct the gospel's audience in its post-70 setting about paying a 70 tax, post-70 tax. So there's still there's still a problem. They're still expecting you to pay the tax even though the temple's the temple's gone. The tax, the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus was levied by Rome on Jews, including Matthew's largely, largely Christian slash Jewish community. While this tax is to be paid, payment is not a matter of pragmatic survival, but nor an acknowledgement of submission to Romans. Blah, 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 blah. Payment expresses the community's allegiance to an anticipation of God's empire, which will overcome, overcome Roman rule. Now, the only reason that I'm, I'm going to just stop there because it goes into a whole lot more detail. There's, there's another part to this, which I, I, it's supposed to be a joke. This, this is from my Hebrew Bible professor. So the Roman emperor is in charge of the land and the sea. It's the gods rule the air, right? What is, it, what is Jesus' most famous phrase about what, do you, what should you do with your tithe? Give to, you know, or, or what you give to you at Rome? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. So what is it that they tell him? He tells them to go throw and get a fish out of the water. Right? The emperor is in charge of the water. And it just so happens that Didrachma is inside the fish. So he gives them what he needs to pay off Rome just by catching a fish. Who's in charge of the fish? God. But Rome seems to think so. Do you see how funny that is? It's supposed to be a really good joke, but <laughs> I mean, I don't catch it until later on in life, but you know. So just, just say that Peter's sent God. Uh, the case. I mean, it's two drachma per person. It's a four drachma coin. Yeah. And Jesus says, you know, just the son have to pay. I think and he's paying for Peter. I think he's making a joke. Yeah, he's covering he's, Peter just like he's going to be covering all of us too. Yeah, I think that pays our tax in that sense, right? Yes. <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's exactly it. I think that's supposed to be a part of the joke, you know. Okay, fine. We'll we'll give them what they need. That's and it's and not only will I pay mine, but I'll pay yours also. Even though the temple is gone, we're still required to pay this for some reason, you know. And uh, it was actually a brilliant. And so it was a brilliant political move that Rome did is to say, okay, well, if your temple is gone, we have temples that you can use. And you know, and, and you and, and you have to pay the same tax that you were paying before. 
And you didn't have a choice to argue, right? Like, well, the capital Linus that he's talking about here is, is actually really cool. Uh, I don't think it's still there. Like, I don't, I don't think the, the, the big, uh, big temple is in Caesarea. So it's close by uh, that they had to pay for. <clears throat> so it's, it's a fascinating conversation, but again, I look at it as kind of humor. Uh, and it just so happens that Jesus is so powerful that he tells Peter to go get a fish and just ask what he needs. You know, and, and notice that the people that are coming to him are not uh, collectors of the temple text. It, it's very particular here that it's not saying chief priests, scribes, Pharisees. It's collectors of the temple text. So they're, they're, that's on purpose. Tony goes into a whole lot more detail here. Uh, yeah, same thing. Okay, let's keep going. Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child. Whom he put among them and said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Uh, and then he goes directly into, if any one of you puts a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you to, uh, for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of the stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. Is that the end? Oh, nice. That's fire. And if your, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes than to be thrown into the poros uh, hell of fire. Oh well, no, Gehenna too. Okay, so it is. Yeah, Gehenna. So it's the fire pit of fire, which is awesome. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and then, and we're just going to pause right there uh, before we keep going on. So. It started off so cute and friendly right. with the children. <laughs> and then what happened? It became a bunch of woes. <laughs> uh, yep. I just I just love the imagery of this passage. It's just it's pretty great, but it's uh it's pretty self-explanatory. Like, I mean I don't you do you all have questions, comments, or no, they did not. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, good assessment. They were. They were. Uh, they were like animals. Until That's right. That's right. Nope. Is there a, a, another meaning too with child? children talking about the church or 
Christians or no. He says it's, it's a visual. A child is excluded from the adult male center as it's as insignificant, vulnerable, dangerous, unpredictable. Uh, the nope, all the same thing. We're supposed to be fun. Yes. said it like if in a Sunday school class something that we brought up we were brought up to believe um i mean i think 85 percent of the reason i teach bible studies this way is to not break apart what it is that you do but to have a better understanding historically academically sociologically because the stuff i got taught in Sunday school would terrify my children like it was god was something to be feared not from my parents you see is from the Sunday school teachers. The Sunday school teachers were, uh, you know, you do the wrong thing once, God won't see you ever again. Like God, God can turn your turn God's eye away from you, um, and uh, you shouldn't sin. You always you should always do what your mom and dad do because that that'll put you in hell. Like I remember I remember the Sunday school teacher saying things like that. And so I tend to have a little bit more hardcore uh, when we do Bible studies to say yes. I know the church has said that. However, what we know now through the study of the scripture and all of us having the ability to read and even understand the languages better, that's not necessarily completely what Jesus would have said. But it's hard, just like Pam said. Because that's what Kings wrote, right? That's that's a really great statement. I guess my thoughts on this is back to Torah, don't be kind of worldly, and I don't take it as my eye. I mean, if, if the culture is leading you astray, then definitely whatever is causing problems. And that's, I think that's part of what Jesus is saying. The adults have already come up with their ideas. The adults are the ones that have caused all the problems. Right, they're the ones that are still paying the temple tax, even though they know it's wrong. Um, so if you go at it from the eyes of a child, you're you're combating 
the physical culture, and you are coming at it with a sense of innocence that, that, that we lose at some point in our life. That innocence disappears some way. Like Robert was saying, I think is it the word hyperbole they will use sometimes, where a teacher or someone speaking to will say something sort of extreme, just to make sure he has your attention, he or she has your attention, and yep. then lets the teaching moment uh, come after that. But you know, like, yeah, try out, and you know, all of a sudden that gets people's attention. Well, uh, it's funny you should mention the gouge your eyes out thing. That's Torah. Is it? Yes. No. If you look at someone with lust. You are to gouge your eyes out with the fiery red poker. Remember those things that I learned in Sunday school? I remember my Sunday school teaching, teaching us in class, in junior high, that if you look at a woman with lust, even thinking about it, you're going to burn in hell. And that you should gouge out your eye, eyeballs with the fiery red poker. They were, she was so hardcore with that. And she said, see, it says so right here in the Bible. It's the same thing with cutting your hand off if you steal the, the Hebrew Bible says that even if you think about those things, you should cut your hands off so you don't sin against God. It'd be sure easy to, to spot a Christian. <laughs> that's the point. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, we'd be all blind and walking yeah. around with no hands. Um, what would our Sunday services <laughs> be like? It would be uh, very interesting. I see all of you here. Nope, not no, no, no. I hear you. I, I, so, uh, I don't know why our organist is playing like four notes at a time, you know, but <laughs> we're here. <laughs> we still kind of practice. I mean, It's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. It's a real deal. It's been there since uh, before Christ. Um, so when Jesus is saying this, that is supposed to be something they connect to instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And for us, you're right. It is a hyperbole. It's yeah, like, it's if I'm going to say that to you, yeah. uh, you're going to be like, what? But to them, this is also a reminder of where they came from. Just what's your grandmother's name? Oh, I have a Gene Curtis. And my great uncle, uh, Winifred McGavin. Pretty sure that this man went out to our church campus in seventh grade and was got caught to get in the girls' bathroom. Uh -oh. And Nicole gave him all this And just, you know, it's not something to be ashamed of, it's not something to be mad at, it's something to be great. I was going to say, he probably couched out their eyeballs with, with words, but Uncle Mac was, and when was you say When you say Torah, that's that's God, I mean, that's Exodus or Deuteronomy? Or First God. five books of the Hebrew Bible. Okay. So it's in there. It's it's actually in mm -hmm. here. I need to read more about it. So Leviticus. I know it's in Leviticus. I know it's the cutting off your hands. It's in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I think the gouging out your eyes is in, in Deuteronomy. So, uh, so interestingly enough, we go straight from this, where you should be thrown into the pit of fire if you do one of these things, to the parable of the lost sheep. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I truly, I tell you, I'm sorry, for I tell you, it does not say them truly. In heaven, there, does it say heaven? 
In heaven, their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. So here's the fear, right? This is the, as, as Tim caught it, the hyperbole into the say, and it's your responsibility to take care of them so that they're not lost. And if you lose one, you are to go find them, bring them back, make sure they're okay. And then he says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault. When the two of you are alone, if the member listens to you, you have regained that one. If you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything yet, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Um, so I, I, I want to tell you. Well, they got me with the church from the work. I know for his brother. Right. Just says if. if if sins against you, the brother of you, that's the same thing the church. Yeah, and the interesting thing for me is, is that I've heard this translated more as like your family member. Like if your family yeah, member says because it's his brother. And and that's typically why I say uh, fam, church family, uh, yeah. who is my brother, who's my sister, you know, who's my family member. Because I think it's it's better than a lot of these translations. It's just What's the word for church? Pagan instead of Gentile. Yeah. Uh, I think it is. It's ethnicos, which means other. Other. Could be pagan, could be Gentile. Yeah. Exactly. Anybody not Jewish. Which is fascinating, right? Because other people, this is a Jewish person writing in Greek. About other people. <laughs> That's my favorite part of this. So I got to tell you a little bit about this passage of scripture uh, for church conflict purposes. We never get to have this conversation, and you're stuck in my Bible study. So here you go. <laughs> Churches have conflict, and it, it's crazy how that works. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not. But churches have conflict. In any group has conflict, and the funny thing about churches—not funny, ha, just funny. Funny odd is the way that they handle it. Is they say, well, what does the Bible say on how to handle conflict? So I'm going to paint you a story. Uh, you're at a church. The church decides that they uh, want to do something with music and worship. Sound familiar? Every church did for hundreds of years, by the way, not just the last 50. <clears throat> I want to do something different with music and worship. So they go, they start creating musicians, they get things to happen. And what happens is somebody gets offended. 
never fails. You can do piano, you can do organ, you can do contemporary music, you can do bell choir, you can have chance choir. You can have someone sing a solo. Someone isn't going to like it. But that person decides to go off and tell everybody in the community outside the church about how awful the church uh, is today because of the god-awful music they're bringing to church. <clears throat> So what the churches have said in the 20th century was, we follow this process in order to deal with conflict. So that person usually was the pastor or one of the elders. Okay, so we understand that you're upset. Yes, I'm super angry. This happened and I don't like it and I don't want to do anything about it. I, I think you should stop it. And, I'm, and if you don't, I'm going to quit the church. Oh, okay. Well, that's not something I physically can help with you, but I'm so sorry that you feel that way. Would it be okay if we had a, a conversation with a couple more elders? See if we can't come to some sort of, this is the, the sin, come to some sort of compromise where we make you happy and we make everybody else happy, right? Notice that the whole thing started from the bottom of the church's heart. We feel moved in this direction. Whether it's music, and it's just using it as something that's touchy for everyone. It could be the color of the walls in the hallway for that So what happens is the church sends an elder and senior minister, and they go talk to this person. It doesn't work. The next one happens. It's a couple elders. It still doesn't work. Here's where it got bad. In the 20th century, when the ministers met with them, several elders have met with them, they brought that conversation piece to the congregation. Now, what is the normal reaction that the church is going to do when something like that has been brought to the church? <laughs> there is that language. Well, ah, they take sides. They split. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be Jesus himself in the sanctuary. When you brought it before the congregation, it splits the church. You, you take sides. You have one group that says, well, if he doesn't like it, he can go someplace else. Or if she doesn't like it, she can go someplace else. Or you have the other one say, oh, but we want to keep the harmony of the church. Uh, and so maybe what we should do is, is we should take that away. In the meantime, the piece that was started by someone's heart is now dismissed. Now you've got another person or another group of people. You see how this needs to be a vicious cycle? <clears throat> so then... <clears throat> it, and then if you follow this mode of church conflict, uh, after you've done that, the church has said, this is the decision that we make. You've told the church family that they're for a person. They're no longer welcome in this church family. They are as if they are pagans or others from us. And we cast them out into the wilderness, which is ironic, right? Because it's following right after the lost sheep. You're supposed to rescue it, but nope, 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 not in this case. In this case, Jesus gives uh, the gospel writer, Matthew, gives a, a way for people to get together and make it work. And then he ends the statement with, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. Just want to throw that out. Took me six minutes, but this is this is the problem with using this specific model for church conflict, 
because as you all have caught it, it automatically ostracizes people. And this is a gospel. It's, it's a gospel it's, truth. It's not, uh, but my meaning is too, it's, uh, it's talking about, you know, a, a, an account of Jesus. Uh, and you would almost think like a church, how a church at least out would be in, in an epistle somewhere. Oh yeah, no, I, I would 100% agree with yeah. you. So that's that's one thing. The context of the of the whole book isn't really supposed to be about how the church is supposed to behave um, in that sense of dealing with the problems of the church. Now, I could be wrong. It could be Matthew trying to insert a little something there, or whatever. But I, I think it's definitely an insert because it's not something that we find uh, really in Mark. Um, that Luke kind of highlights for a second. John avoids the topic altogether. And the only other person we hear about how to deal with church conflict is Paul. And it's funny you should mention Galatians because he's, he's right out front of the, and, and he says almost identical for uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, I don't want to leave you there with thinking that's how Jesus ends the story because what he says then is then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against, uh, against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus says, not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. Uh, 70 times seven. 70 times seven. Right. And they usually just translate it as 77. Which is 70 times seven. It's a high number. It's a big number. A lot of times. So 491, you guys watch out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because there are churches that say, oh, we're done. We're not even going to seek forgiveness or reconciliation. So here's the problem. We have, a, we have an issue. We want to we want to talk about the issue with the person to try to, to reconcile, not compromise. I know that sounds awful, but if the community is moving in one way, this person is not our goal is to try to keep everybody in the same boat, but sometimes they jump ship. That's not your fault. And then he says, well, what happens if they, if I, I can't, if, if they harm against the church or harm against me, how should I forgive them? As many times as it takes. This is the part the church forgot in the last 20 centuries. Can we skip 18 to 20? Nope. Nope, we got it where there are two or three gathered in my name that's right actually could you read that out loud because this is a better translation well i'm reading from the greek so i'll be able to yeah i say to you whatever you bind on the earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you abolish upon the earth will have been abolished in heaven again truly i say to you that if two will be in agreement of you two of you will be in agreement upon the earth concerning every matter whatever they would ask, it will be done for them by the Father of the And where there are two or three gathered in my name, and they're mine, right? <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> you're doing these things in the name of God. So, see, we're in my human head. I don't see how this is ever going to work. Yeah. Because if if I go talk to you, Josh, and we don't agree, supposed to go get two others. I'm going to go get two others that agree with me. <laughs> and now we've got more than one person agreeing with me. It's an odd number. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, 
And if I have to go get more, I'm still going to go get more from people that agree with this. Well, now you see why the church is. Well, and that's kind of what I'm struggling with. You kind of come off this that if you don't agree, then end up with a church split or something like that. Well, then it sounds to me like starting in verse 18, it's a promise. Okay. So you've got two or three that are split off. They're saying that God's there, and you've got the old group saying that. God's there. It doesn't ever seem like it's resolved. It, it's it's the uh, immovable problem. There's no way. This this is where my it's funny you should say Uncle Matt, but my grandfather stopped serving in congregations shortly after the Civil Rights Movement. His church was the last uh, desegregated Christian church in Durham, North Carolina, and his church wanted to go back to segregated. And he said, no. And, and they said, well, preacher, we appreciate what you have to say, but we don't need you anymore. And so my grandfather said, okay, no problem. And, uh, and then he stopped preaching at the First Christian Church in Durham. And coincidentally, it closed three years after that. You know, uh, not that my granddad danced the jig over their grave, but, you know, he, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a moment where, they didn't, they didn't agree. And he's the, the elder, right? That's how we look at our, our roles. This is that we're, we're an elder. We're not a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm an elder. So, so the one he's like, God is here. God is here. Both, but it sounded like in this case, God wasn't there with that one and it, and it withered and it, it passed away. That's what my grandfather would have said. Yeah. You can tell the things of God because of their, their fruit. If it's if it doesn't bear fruit, then it's not of God. It's of the people. Yeah, Cindy, you probably attested this. <clears throat> I never knew how much conflict there was in the church as, as a church member. I had to be on staff to, to know how much conflict. How much I had to be on the staff at the on the office to know how much conflict there really is in the church. I didn't know any of that before I came on staff. Yeah. You were in the office for years. You solved lots. Um, and you don't even see it on the board because what Robert Roberts always said, the board always says, all of the favor say I, and everybody says I, and the next month they come back and say, well, we want to rethink what we did last time. This wasn't really what we wanted to do. Well, that's okay. You know, but but it, it, you don't hear the conflicts even at the board meeting that you hear. Come and see the church office. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's and why I didn't like the chairs in the church office because people would come and just sit down and be tell you everything. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I thought, okay, having all these chairs in here is inviting people to come and just sit mm -hmm. and yeah. the doctors in. <laughs> well, and, and and you're and you all you're all catching this. This is this is part of the struggle that the church was facing even in the first century. Is this how how do we operate in such a way that we recognize that there's someone navigating or a group of people that are navigating among um, amongst the on conflict right there's a there has to be someone steering the ship right uh, sometimes it's a group of people maybe it's a board maybe it's the minister maybe it's certain things but however that works uh not everybody's going to agree um, and so the it's it's fascinating because what he does then is, is he goes straight from that uh and we're not we're not going to be well we could we could no, I'm going to stop there. We're going to, 
<clears throat> as far as reading, because he goes in from that into uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And um, I think it really, no, we got to finish it that way. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, he, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity for him, the Lord of the slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Denari. Notice the, the, the monetization has changed. Less than. Um, and I lost more place. He... What verse am I at? 20. 20. But the same slave as he went out, he slaves who owed him 100, and seizing him, grabbed him by the throat. He said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him and having patience, and, and then pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Uh, and But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt, which is forever, right? That's the whole point. Um, when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to the their Lord, all that had taken place. Then the Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would be paid until he would pay his entire debt. Now here's the part. So my father and my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's the end of that story, right? Like that's the worst part of this. And this is where churches, I think, is a collective mess up. Uh, when I've seen this in the past, with when I've worked with lots of congregations, what ends up happening is, is uh, we take out the heart. We forget that the person that's angering everyone in the room is still a human being. And we're not reaching in to see what's actually causing them the pain. Now, at some point, and I'm I'm just being blunt, at some point there are some that you're just never going to appease. And sometimes it's almost better for them to find someplace else because maybe we're not the, the same ship that they need to be on. And we're all on the same goal, right? We're on the same, same journey. It's just that we don't know how to jump into into one honda he said did that just like one accord yeah. oh well, yeah, that was nice you. nice I, I did jump on that yeah that's for you so uh <laughs> so it, we don't have to jump into that we, we can all take different vehicles that's part of the part of the thing here but if we're going to be in the same car or if we're going to be in the same boat we we have to at least recognize that uh we have to be nice to the navigator sometimes and we have to be nice to the person driving and the person sitting in the back saying, are we going to get there yet? Um, and I think that's the funniest thing for me with churches is, is that it's the perfect example of a car trip. Because um, we, we know we, we know we have a destination. We know where we're trying to get, uh, but nothing ever goes exactly the way we had planned. The goal is to be able to improvise and adapt and overcome. And in that moment, the yelling and the fighting that happens in the car and the, the car ride um, we all end up making it back home um, and we still love each other. You know, 
That's the goal. Well, Jesus doesn't tell Peter that they're going to agree. That's right. He says to forgive. Over, over and over and over again. So I think that's where we'll end our Bible study for today. And we'll start up with uh, chapter 19. Really, really life subject uh, as we start talking about divorce uh, in chapter 19. Um, the, I just want to remind you all, uh, as I stop the recording, 